Well, we come this morning, you may have thought it would never happen. We come to our final text in the Sermon on the Mount, the text we just read from the Gospel lesson. Now, it's important again to realize what Jesus is doing as he brings this bracing vision of the, of the kingdom to a close. He is driving home the inescapable choice before us, a choice we cannot avoid or evade. Right? We who have heard these words and can never live again as if we did not hear them. He presses the matter urgently toward the conclusion. For if we walk away, he thinks, from the Sermon on the Mount, unscathed, unbroken, Jesus thinks that places us in a state of grave peril. And so his closing argument, if you will, to this point has looked like this. Here's what he said in the conclusion of the sermon. He says, first, there are two ways. There's the narrow, hard way. Few are on it. It's the way that leads to life. Few find it. And there's a broad, spacious way, an easy way. Many are on it. That way leads to destruction. Many find it. That's how he begins this conclusion. The Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> represents the narrow way. Enter then, he says. Enter, strive to enter in Luke's gospel. Enter by the narrow gate. Then, he says, there are good trees and bad trees. You'll know them by their fruits. And the failure to bear good fruit ends with trees being cut down and thrown into the fire. So the sermon, he says, sets before us the, the true, the faithful image of Christian fruitfulness. Beware of the imitations. And then last week, we looked at those who say, Lord, Lord, but do, and do many mighty deeds in Christ's name, and yet are frauds, mysteriously. Destined also on the last day to be told, I never knew you. Depart from me. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, not spiritual power, wonders, gifts, or even orthodox confession. The Sermon on the Mount shows what it means to know Jesus and to do the will of his Father who's in heaven. Look then, Jesus said, for the right evidences of faith. For no one who lacks them will enter the kingdom. So hopefully, like we're seeing a pattern. Jesus thinks that responding to him, especially responding to his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is a life and death matter. It's a question of either sincere, authentic Christianity or some kind of fraudulent counterfeit. Right? Heaven and hell, Jesus thinks, hang in the balance here. So the stakes could not be higher. Right? We're not going to be able to just shunt the Sermon on the Mount away and keep it at arm's distance. Jesus refuses to allow his hearers then and now to do that. And so today, at the very end, he has one last short parable. And guess what? 
it's also frightening. It's as if he knows that the history of hearing the Sermon on the Mount will be a history of avoiding it, of explaining it away, of refusing to go the way of the cross, of finding ways to say, well, the sermon doesn't really apply to us. So again, this is at least the third time in the conclusion Jesus pulls out all the stops to get us to hear him. And more, not to be mere hearers, but to be doers of his word. So with that, we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The builders and the teacher. The builders and the teacher. There's nothing complicated about this text today. It is, if anything, too clear. So first, the builders. To reiterate, Jesus is talking to us, to disciples, to professed followers. He's not talking to unbelievers or to a unique crowd of play-acting frauds. He is speaking to the church. Both classes of people in this little parable, those who build on the rock and those who build on the sand, both groups are building Christian lives. Right? That's what they're doing. That's their grand project. They're building Christian lives. They both have Bibles. Right? The parable extends all the way out to the last day. Right? The words speak to the whole church. They both have Bibles. They both go to church. Right? They're engaged in the same sort of project or projects. And they both apparently are listening to Jesus. Right? After all, right, 95% or so of both houses would be identical. Right? Identical materials, identical design, identical appearance, the same windows, the same roofing, the same siding, the same kitchen appliances. The houses look the same. You can walk around them even. They look the same. Just as there was no way to tell the five foolish virgins from the five wise ones until the cry at midnight when the bridegroom appears. So here, there is no way before the storm, the tempest, to tell these builders apart. True piety, Calvin says, is not distinguished from the counterfeit until the trial comes. And so it is to us, in all of our commonality, in all of our shared outward Christian appearances, it is to us that Jesus speaks. And his words apply to us all. Notice the first word in the text. Everyone. Not just the first century here. Everyone who hears these words. Because the divine author breathed these words out for the whole church. Everyone who hears these words. And again, in verse 26, to emphasize it, everyone who hears these words of mine. Even us. What words? Jesus' own words, especially the words of the sermon. I cannot stress, having worked through this text for the last, I don't know how long it's been, months, the fundamental importance of this text for Christian ethics. 
I mean, it's, it's easy in the Christian life to kind of um, not distinguish properly, right? Well, there's, there's this Bible verse and that passage over there, and I like this, and then there's this, and then there's that. And to not, like, order stuff. But the Sermon on the Mount is the heart and soul of Christian ethics. It's not just one piece of teaching among other pieces of teaching. Remember, it's the front end of Jesus' whole ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first thing he says after he's baptized. So this is the heart, right? We should have pocket copies of the Sermon on the Mount. You should memorize these three chapters. I have a friend who's memorized the whole book of Proverbs. Because this is sort of like a north, north star, like a guiding light. You come back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it. If you drift, it's, it's a bracing tonic, right, about our speech and about our anger and about how we treat our enemies and about where our loves are ordered and about where our treasure is. To consult a text like this every year or every 18 months is not enough. It should be at the pulsating heart. These words. Everyone who hears these words. And in putting the matter this way, Jesus is not only fronting the importance of the sermon to Christian ethics, but he is claiming to be divine. Right? He's putting his own speech on a par with the word of God. Right? So, so the audacity of this claim should not be missed. Res- he's responding to or not responding to what I am saying will determine your eternal destiny. Who talks like this? These words are m- of mine then are what it means to do the will of my Father. They are what it means to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. These words are what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, without which no one will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in the parable itself, the first group hears these words of Jesus. Again, the whole Bible is the word of God, to be sure. But Jesus is intensifying these words. They hear these words, and they do them. The second group hears these words, and they evade them. They find ways not to do them. So it's quite simple, really. Jesus here expects, and he demands, under threat of eternal sanctions, that we be doers of these words. That we not walk away from the sermon without taking up this costly way of obedience. We heard in the words of our Lord's brother from the the epistle of James this morning, the New Testament lesson, be doers of the word, not hearers only, right? Don't be like someone who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what they saw. The sermon is a mirror, right? It's a mirror. We need to hold ourselves up to it. We won't like what we see, We won't like what we see, so there's things we can do. We can throw the mirror away. We can tuck the mirror somewhere down. That's why I said you you should have the mirror in your pocket. The question, of course, is how will we respond long term? Those who respond, Jesus says, by doing or with obedience, 
Not perfect obedience to be sure, but real obedience, substantial obedience, gospel obedience, grace-induced obedience. Such people here are called wise. Right? For in this, it's interesting, they're called wise. In the sermon, Jesus is, among other things, taking the stance of a sage, a wise teacher who shows us the way to human flourishing. Remember, the sermon, one scholar said, is eschatological wisdom teaching. Wisdom from the age to come, for people who belong to the age to come. Those who hear, those who heed, those who go this narrow way, they are like wise men, Jesus says. This reconfigures our idea of what wisdom is. Right? A person may have a lot of gifts. They may have a lot of insight. They may have great discernment. They may be very skilled. If they're not poor in spirit, they're not wise. If they're not meek, they are not wise. If they are not peacemakers, they are not wise. If they don't rejoice in persecution, they are not wise. If they're treasures on earth and not in heaven, they are not wise. I suggest we don't think of wisdom like this. The one who hears these words and does them is wise, he says. Those who don't, he says, are foolish or like the fool. Not fool, of course, in the Bible does not mean intellectually inept or naive or dumb. Fools can be very clever. right? They can be very gifted. By fool here, Jesus means a person that's deluded or corrupted. Wisdom or folly, those are the choices. Now, notice this in the text as well. Those that are wise, or like the wise man, build their house on the rock. Not a rock, but the rock. And the rock here is Jesus Christ. Right? Paul tells us this. No one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The sermon makes us Christ-centered. And again, in this context, the rock is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, the incarnate wisdom of God, who calls us to heed the Sermon on the Mount in imitation of his pattern. Right? One thing about the Sermon on the Mount is he lived it first left us a pattern, and then says, follow in these steps. So here the wisdom teacher tells us, I embodied this way. You now embody it. Obey it. Flesh it out. So we're called to build on this rock. And this is not an easy matter. It's not a trivial matter. It's certainly not natural for us. One of the ways we know this is that in Luke's gospel... Jesus says right here at this part, when he tells this parable in Luke, he says that the builder dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. We are going to have to dig deep to do this. And that means we're going to have to shovel a lot of stuff out of the way. It doesn't matter how long you've been in Christ. In fact, it might be a disadvantage because there'll just be more encrusted, hardened stuff that you think is just natural, good Christian stuff. 
You're going to have to shovel a lot of stuff out of the way to get the Sermon on the Mount down into the marrow, into the DNA, into the rock bottom levels of your soul. Right, next week we'll be on to another series. It's the first Sunday in Advent. I love it. It's a joyful time of year. But you still have the Sermon on the Mount, the pocket copy, I hope. Because you're still going to need the shovel. Because the digging doesn't end in this life. Right? It'll be arduous, backbreaking, exacting labor. Dig down deep. It will be perpetual crucifixion, which is for us the joy of resurrection life. Or we can be content to remain where we are. Right? Some basic, decent Christian morality in place. You know, the rudiments of a Christian worldview. But nothing really disturbing of the status quo. Certainly nothing like the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing disruptive like this. Nothing radical like this. Nothing that's going to make us question our idols. Not other people's idols, our idols. After all, Jesus does not call you here to dig down deep into somebody else's soul. So this clash, the foolish, they don't stop to dig down deep. They've got other things to do. They're busy. They don't cultivate the interior life. They're in a hurry. They don't realize what they are up against in the depths of their own soul. And they will not, Jesus says, make these words of mine central to their ethical vision. Again, I cannot stress this enough. These words of the sermon must become central to our ethical vision of the Christian life. Ask yourself this question, especially those of us who've been in Christ a long time. How many people do you know, Christian people? Well, let's, let's, make, let's bring it closer to home. How many reformed Christian people do you know? For whom it can honestly be said that the Sermon on the Mount is the ethical heartbeat of their life. Right? That when you think of them, you think of the Beatitudes. You think of the Sermon. The Sermon is how they shape their lives. I don't think you're going to need all the fingers on one hand to count those number of people. Jesus expects every single person who's heard his words to make these words the fundamental driving force of their ethical approach to the Christian life. But the foolish don't do this. They will not pay the price to infuse the Sermon on the Mount into their bloodstream. They want the house, right? They want the glory of the house. They don't want any digging down into their secret places. You know, mucking around with that stuff that's way down there. That deeply entrenched stuff. As Calvin puts it, speaking of this very text, these people will not dig down. He uses the words from Luke's gospel. They will not dig down to the point of utter self-denial. We resist this, right? Again, the way of the cross is for Jesus. For us, no thank you. 
And for both classes of people, the text tells us, there's a torrential violent storm coming that's going to beat up against the house and beat up against it and beat up against it and beat up against it. Now, sure, the, the metaphor of the storm can mean the various sufferings which engulf us in this life. There are plenty of those. And these storms will show us who we really are. As I said, the houses look pretty much identical until the storm comes. You really don't know who you are, who people are, until we've suffered. Especially when you suffer unjustly. Or until you experience loss or bitter disappointment. Right? It's crisis and it's calamity which reveal character, right? The, the great 5th century Greek church father Chrysostom speaks of the one who has pursued the way of excellence, he says. And such a person who has pursued these virtues, these grace-infused virtues, he says, experiences equilibrium in full abundance in the midst of the crashing surf. They experience a calm sea, he says. That's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. There's a kind of serenity and a kind of peace that enables one to stand in the midst of the storm. So as real as the storms are, this is really not a... Jesus is not really speaking about life storms here. Right? The, the storm, the driving rains, the raging floods, the howling winds, this is the storm of the Lord of the clouds coming in final eschatological judgment. You got a glimpse of this a little bit from the Isaiah text this morning. Here's Isaiah speaking of Christ, the rock foundation, who ushers in the kingdom of God. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. It's quite possible Jesus had this text in mind when he told our little parable from Matthew 7. Whoever believes in me, Isaiah says, will not be in haste. Isn't that gorgeous? Like whoever believes in Christ will not be in haste. Like they're not going to be running around frantically like a chicken with their head cut off. There's going to be some stability, some equanimity. They're not going to be jittery. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. I'll make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And then the passage goes on to speak of hail sweeping away the refuge of lies and waters completely overwhelming the shelter, leaving the land desolate. When the kingdom comes, when the Messiah introduces his kingdom, it comes with a storm, with a deluge sweeping away every refuge of lies. Right? What's the opening salvo of public preaching in the New Testament? It's John the Baptist. Who, will, who we will be hearing from, Lord willing, in Advent, right? It's John the Baptist saying, this one here is ready, you know, with his axe in his hand to cut down on fruitful trees, right? And bring forth an unquenchable fire. This is how the New Testament opens in its preaching. The Noahic flood, Jesus says, right? 
is a picture. It, it destroyed the world that then was, but it's a picture or a type of a universal storm which is to come. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. History ends with a storm. Remember, Jesus is closing the sermon. And I've already pointed out earlier, he pits life in one way versus destruction in the other. He talks about trees being cut down and thrown into the fire, of entering the kingdom on that day, of banishing the lawless ones from his presence. He's not switching the topic here. He's still speaking of these issues of eternity. For the day of the storm, Paul says, is like a fire which reveals the quality of our workmanship. We don't like our work tested. If we didn't dig down deep, if we built with wood and hay and stubble, right, rather than gold and silver and precious stones, the storm will reveal it, Paul says. Shoddy work will be burned up. You'll be left with the shell of the house. So one house, one kind of Christian existence, right, just just. To state it explicitly, right? The house means a particular kind of Christian life. One kind of Christian existence stands in the day of the storm. Jesus thinks all the other kinds, which look identical from a distance, are going to have a great crashing fall. So, be wise. Build on the rock. Dig down deep. Solomon himself told us in the, his book of wisdom, right, his book for sages, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. And a sage greater than Solomon is speaking to you here. So the second point, briefly then, is the teacher himself. This is Matthew 7, verse 28. The text says, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Amazement. Awe. Astonishment. That, by the way, is where all Christian theologizing and reflection begins. It begins in wonder. It begins in amazement. Has the Sermon on the Mount done that to you? Astonishment. It's not enough to be sure. Just being astonished is not enough. But its absence is a critical indicator. Its absence means one is sleepwalking. The crowds are dumbfounded by the sermon they just heard. The text does not say, and when Jesus finished, the crowd said, that's not bad. I've heard this guy a lot, and that's one of his better sermons. I'd give him a B, B plus. They're astonished. Look, they thought the stuff that he said was challenging and demanding and stunning in their day. They're astonished. You should be astonished. Because he's just said a whole bunch of shocking stuff. I often joke that some of this stuff should make you want to throw your Bible across the room. 
You do know, of course, right, that secular atheist unbelievers, many of them, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, the criticism is just this. The stuff is ridiculously, preposterously, impossible and inhumane. No one can do it. No one has ever done it. And let's not pretend anyone plans on doing it. Right? Nietzsche said there was only one Christian and he died on the cross. The rest of them are pretenders. It's a lot of truth in that. Though Jesus was not a Christian in the sense of needing grace. Right? But you get the point. People are astonished. Unbelievers are astonished by this. Now, there is another class of unbelievers who look at this and say, ah, this is what we have to do. We don't need atonement, and we don't need judgment, and we don't need a gospel. We just have to be good ethical people. But in both cases, it's hard for unbelievers to not be astonished. It's full of shocking things. They're astonished not merely by the content, though. They're also astonished by the manner of teaching and what it says about the one who's addressing us here. For he was teaching them, the text says, as one who had authority, intrinsic authority, and not as one of the scribes. I mean, they heard a lot of teaching, these people. It's a lot of Torah studies. The scribes, however, cite authorities. They quote the ancients. They footnote. They recognize that even at their wisest, they are derivative figures. That's what the wisest scholar in this age is, a derivative figure. They receive, the scribes receive, and they pass on. They parrot. This one does not refer to others. That's part of the astonishment. He doesn't refer to anyone else to confirm his words. He cites no corroborating sources. Are you handing a paper to your teacher? You have no footnotes? They're not going to like it. You're going to get it back, right? Cite some authorities. You don't write down, I am the authority, and hand the paper back in. That's what Jesus does, though. He cites no authorities, no rabbis. He doesn't rely or teach on another's authority, but he possesses in himself all authority. In fact, at the end of this gospel, he will say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So it's this one, and he alone, who can step forward and say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I am the legislator of the kingdom of God. I am not a commentator. He alone declares who will possess the kingdom, who will inherit the earth, who will see God, who will obtain mercy, who will be forgiven. His own words, without any apology, without even any defense, just simply set forth as divine. They are the criteria, he says, these words of mine are the criteria which will determine whether one enters the kingdom of heaven or is consigned to hell. So to answer the question raised earlier, who speaks like this? The answer from John 7 is no one ever spoke as this man. No one. So let me conclude. The astonishing and authoritative teacher has spoken. 
Now, he does not seek to drive us to permanent despair, though some temporary despair in light of the Sermon on the Mount is not out of place. But Jesus is never going to leave us in that place. He is our salvation, and he seeks here to drive us to himself. Please don't look at this and give up. Look at this and throw yourself on the gospel mercy of God and Jesus Christ. He's trying to drive us to himself, to embrace with joyful, exultant gladness this way, this paradoxical way of the cross. I've mentioned it here a couple of times before, this wonderful collection of prayers that the Puritans put together called the Valley of Vision. I know many of you have it. The the title prayer, the first prayer in the book, is called the Valley of Vision. And it grasps that you, you, it's in the depths of the valley that the stars look to bright. You have to dig down deep. It's in the lowest place that one has the exhilarating highest vision of heaven. Here's just a part of that prayer. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. And then the paradox, and they even stated here, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. I want you to notice the word is here. The text does not say the way down leads to the way up or the way down will eventually lead to you being up. It says the way down is the way up, right? Right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. The way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. That's the paradoxical mystery of the Sermon on the Mount. And as I close, we should ask ourselves then, are we more like this now than we were a few months ago? Do we want this form of transfigured Christian existence because it's painful. Would anyone, especially those closest to us, honestly describe us as progressing in this way? That is, would anyone near you say, oh yes, you are poor in spirit. You mourn your own sin. You're meek. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You're a reconciling peacemaker. You receive slander and persecution with joy because of your heavenly reward. You are tearing out anger and lust at their roots, right? You're refusing to turn, return evil for evil. You're turning the other cheek. You refuse to sue. You go the extra mile. You love your enemies. You pronounce benedictions and blessings on your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. 
You lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth, and I'll just stop right there for the sake of time. This is a long digging process. It must be said one last time, one last time, Jesus does not think this is some form of elite Christianity. The church made that mistake many times in its history. Well, this is for monks, people with the gift of singleness, people with a special call to to live a life of poverty or something like that. But it cannot possibly be for the common rank and file people. Jesus does not think so. He does not think we can persist in striking back, in mocking our enemies, in defending ourselves and our stuff at every turn. He does not think we can subsist in anger, in perpetual grasping and striving, in unforgiveness, in the refusal to go this way, and still be perfectly good Christians. He does not. He thinks this is the way of righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God. For Notice, for everyone who's heard. Everyone who's heard. This and this only. Again, I want to challenge you, but I do not want us to lose heart. Or to be afraid. Jesus is with us. And for us. And the teacher here, the sage, is our savior. We are going to stumble in this way. He's going to pick you up. Wipe you off. Cleanse you, renew you, show you this mercy, and set you back on your feet. And he's going to do this thousands of times. But let's not take our eyes off the goal. What Jesus has given the church, and this is acknowledged, by the way, by people even outside the church. He has given us the most radiant, the most perfect picture of human life ever sketched. Right? In this sense, Nietzsche's right. There's only one person who's lived the Sermon on the Mount out, and that's Jesus. He's given us this sketch, and this is a summons to a grand and a joyful adventure. It is a deep liberation to embrace the Sermon on the Mount. It reorders the whole cosmos for you. Those of you who have tried to embrace it know this. Everything looks different after this. But it's also disorienting and at times disheartening. You know what it's like? Well, it's like building a big, grand, beautiful house. It's like building a big, beautiful house. One that's going to withstand the storm of the great day. So through the Spirit, dig down deep, build your house, the edifice of your soul on the rock of Christ. And these words... Come back to these words. Come back to them. Finally, I'm going to close with one more snippet of of a Puritan prayer from that same collection. I want this prayer to be ours as we seek by grace to flesh this out. Here's the prayer. Plow deep in me, great Lord. Plow deep in me, great Lord. Heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide until you alone are seen in me, your beauty golden like the summer harvest, your fruitfulness as autumn plenty. Amen.